Well, I do want to thank you, church, for your consistent giving uh, to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And again, ask that if you haven't already decided on a gift this year to give, uh, to give graciously and sacrificially. Maybe you've already decided, and the Lord might lead you to give even more. And so I hope that you'll uh, take this call to heart as we consider uh, so many missionaries that we don't have videos of, that we don't have updates from. Uh, those who are ministering among people that we may not know the names of. Uh, there are people sharing the gospel. There are people coming to faith today because of this partnership we have. So we do ask that you would continue to give graciously and sacrificially to it. Uh, if you would turn uh, this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we uh, continue in our study of God's word and as we come into this fourth Sunday of Advent, this time when we consider the birth of Jesus uh, in God's providence, we come to a text uh, about another unexpected king. Uh, if you've been with us in our study in 1 Samuel, you know that uh, this takes us through a time in Israel's history when they had uh, really rejected the kingship of God. They had called out for an earthly king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And so God gave them what they were asking for, uh, even though he warned them through uh, the prophet Samuel, of what would happen if they were to get a king. Uh, but they were stubborn and they were rebellious, and so God gave them a king and Saul. And Saul started out well, uh, but he didn't end so well. And so what we've seen in recent weeks is now Saul's rebellion against God and God withdrawing his blessing from Saul, withdrawing his spirit from Saul, and now he will turn and he will anoint the second king of Israel, David who we know from our study of God's word, is, is a foreshadowing, is a, a picture of a greater king that is to come in our Lord and uh, Savior, Jesus. And so this is, uh, begins a very important part of our study in First and Second Samuel as we now come to the anointing of King David, this unexpected king. And so we're going to read through uh, another long section of scripture today together as we consider God's word and how he might use that word in our lives today. We're going to go through uh, this entire chapter and add a reverence for God's word. If you're able to, if you would stand as I read God's word for us this morning. We're now at a point where God has uh, rejected Saul as king. He's already told Samuel uh, that he already has someone else uh, ordained and set aside and chosen to be king. And now he's going to lead Samuel to that person, to David. And we see that now as we look at chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful at playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider your word and the anointing of David as king and, and then what can seem to us a rather peculiar interaction here, this language of a tormenting spirit that's placed on Saul and, and how this music would soothe him. Lord, help us to see your, your hand on salvation history. Help us to see your providence at work. Help us to see the gospel unfolding through your word. And help us to respond to your gospel and repentance and faith. We ask this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I was talking with Caroline, our youngest, and uh, Caroline said, Dad, I have a question about your sermon this Sunday. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, my, my kids are paying attention and they're, they're reading ahead. And she's probably read 1 Samuel 16. And maybe she's got a question about this harmful spirit or, or something about David, something about Saul. And so I'm, I'm getting all excited to answer this question. And I said, okay, uh, Caroline, what's your question? 
She said, when are you going to talk about how much the 12 days of Christmas cost? <laughs> well, she has been listening at least, because I talk about that about this time of year. At least I have in some years past. Uh, if you've been with us during those Advent Sundays, I often will refer to the, the, the PNC Christmas price index. It's something that PNC has been doing for close to 40 years where they take the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, and they look at how much those things actually cost and whether that cost has gone up or down. So uh, Caroline was curious, maybe you're curious, so I'll share just a bit about that this morning. Uh, I was looking at those numbers last night and uh, what was interesting to me is that the overall cost of true love as it's expressed in The 12 Days of Christmas has gone down dramatically from last year. And in fact, the 2020 price index dropped almost 60% from 2019. And so you get a deal this year uh, for $16,168.14. Uh, you can show the 12 days of Christmas, give the 12 days of Christmas. Now, I'll explain a little bit of that change. Uh, some prices stayed the same. Uh, a partridge and a pear tree will cost you the same this year as it cost you last year, $210. So if you're still looking for that last-minute Christmas gift, uh, there it is. Seven swans of swimming, I have no idea where you go to find seven swans of swimming, but apparently that cost is the same. It's about $13,000. Uh, then there's prices that went up in 2020 over 2019. Uh, two turtle doves, for example, cost 50% more in 2020 than they did in 2019. So I'm not sure what people were doing with turtle doves during the quarantine, but apparently there was a high demand and the price went up. Uh, the price of gold's gone up, and so five golden rings will cost you about $120 more this year than it did last year. Uh, so if prices went up, some say the same. Why the dramatic price drop? Well, you may have anticipated this. Uh, that's because nine ladies dancing, ten lords leaping, eleven pipers piping, and twelve drummers drumming were not available this year because of COVID-19 and the cancellation of live events. Like many other things, these things were canceled. And we know this because we have experienced it. 2020 has been a year quite different than any of us anticipated it would be. I mean, just imagine for a second, if you could, go back to uh, the Sunday, the Lord's Day, before Christmas last year. And imagine I were to come up here before you and say, now listen, some strange things are going to happen next year. Uh, you are probably going to have to go to multiple stores, perhaps in multiple cities next year, to find toilet paper. You probably would have laughed at me if I'd said it then. If I had said to you, now, you'll probably be able to eat at your favorite restaurant in 2020, but you might end up eating in your car in the parking lot, and only then with members of your household. If I were to tell you all the things that have become rather common to us in recent months, a year ago, well, that's not what you would have expected. This has been a year that's been rather unexpected. But it's important for us to recognize as we deal with years like this and events like this and things like this that none of this is unexpected when it comes to the sovereign hand of God. When it comes to the providence of God. When it comes to our God who holds all time in His hands, who perfectly knows the past and the present and the future as shocking and surprising as 2020 has been for us. God is not shocked and God is not surprised. 
And that's important for us to understand. We need to remember the sovereignty and the providence of God, especially as we come to places in the Scripture like 1 Samuel 16, because this is shocking to God's people. They had cried out for a king. God had given them a king. Now they have Saul. They're not expecting a sudden change in leadership. They're not expecting that God would remove his blessing from Saul. And they're certainly not expecting that their next king would come from the the youngest, perhaps the smallest of Jesse's son, from Bethlehem of all places. They were not expecting this. And yet this is very much in the providence and in the sovereignty of God. And so as we walk through this text today, I hope we'll remember that that same sovereign God who was at work in 1 Samuel 16, that same sovereign God who's been at work throughout this year 2020, is the same sovereign God who calls us to trust in Him. For friends, we do not know our tomorrows. Perhaps even stranger things will come in 2021. But we know the God who is sovereign over all things. And my hope is as we walk through his word today that we will put an even greater trust in our sovereign God. And so let's consider some things that we learn from this text, some some applications for us today as we walk through 1 Samuel 16, beginning with the first one that I put there in your outline, point one. Do not put your hope in the kings of this earth. We're reminded in the very first verse here that there is this underlying temptation we have to do what the Israelites did. To to put our hope in man. To put our hope in earthly leaders and earthly kings and earthly politicians and, and so many others of this earth. And we're reminded of what an exercise in futility that is as we consider what happened here with Saul. And notice in that very first verse we read, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? We have to ask the question, why was Samuel grieving over Saul? Now I think certainly Samuel's grieving over Saul's sin, just as we should grieve over the sin of another. You know, when we see the headlines of another ministry leader falling in sin, when we read the accounts of another well-known Christian who, who had a secret life of sin and now that's been exposed, we, we shouldn't read those things like the world does. We shouldn't buy into that gotcha journalism or, or kind of this desire, this wickedness, I think, in many, to expose things about others in hopes that we might feel better about ourselves. No, when we see these things take place and happen, we should grieve them. We should grieve the effects of the fall and how it ravishes people's lives. We should grieve when people rebel against God and when they turn from Him. And I think there's an aspect of that here with Samuel, that he's he's grieving over Saul's sin. And I think also, perhaps Samuel here, he's grieving over what might have been. And he's thinking about how Saul started out so well. Perhaps he's, he's reliving in his mind those scenes of that private anointing and that public ceremony where here you had Saul who the Scripture tells us over and over again he, he was taller than everyone else and he was handsome and he just stood out leaps and bounds above the crowd. He, he just had king written all over him. He started out so well he goes in there and he takes on the enemies of God. 
But not so long after that, we see him cowering in fear. We see him going through religious rituals, thinking somehow he can invoke the favor of God when he has lost the favor of God. And we ultimately see God reject him. And so perhaps Samuel not only is grieving over Saul's sin, he's grieving over what might have been had Saul trusted the Lord, had Saul walked with the Lord. Remember that what Samuel did after he had anointed Saul as the king, there was that transition of power, there was that farewell address. And his mind, he was, he was looking to Saul as this great king over Israel. He had given all the warnings, he knew all the warnings, but, but his hope was likely that, that Saul would exceed expectations. So much so that he's willing to give this farewell address to transition from being the last judge now to Saul being the first king. He had passed the baton. But now it seems he's grieving because the baton has been dropped. Whatever the case, in his grief, it seems that, that God gives him sort of a rebuke here. <laughs> he tells him that it's time to stop grieving that in God's providence and in his timing it's time to anoint the next king and he needs to be about God's work and he needs to gather himself and go and do this he tells him fill your horn with oil and go I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I've provided for myself a king among his sons and of course we know this king will be David a man after God's own heart but of course, if you know the story, you know that David will also fail. In fact, when you really step back and you consider the failures of Saul and you compare those with the failures of David, it seems that David's failures stack up even more. I mean, this man would become an adulterer, a murderer, and he too would rebel against the command of God. He would be a failure. And yet God would use him for his kingdom purposes just as he has used Saul for his kingdom purposes. But these men are reminders to us that we are to put our hope in the God who uses these men and not put our hope in these men. There's a temptation within each one of us to, to put our hope in worldly things, to put our hope in the kings of this earth. Now, we don't have a, a king here in our nation, but, but we do have leaders. And God's word gives us very clear instructions about these leaders. Romans chapter 13, these leaders are authorities who have been appointed by God, whether you voted for them or not. First Timothy 2, we need to pray for these leaders, whoever they may be. This is the instruction we are given, but we need to be mindful that the leaders of this earth are temporary. That they are used under God's purposes for a season, and then they move on. That so often we see their flaws exposed. We need to be careful not to put our hope in them. Because our hope can only be placed in Jesus. Because Jesus is our eternal king. Jesus is our king without flaw. Jesus will never be in a scandalous headline uncovering some secret sin. Jesus is without sin and that's why he is our perfect savior. That's why he could go to the cross in our place. 
We have an eternal king and we should place our hope in him. The second thing I believe we're reminded of from this text then, number two is this. We should trust in God to provide his will in his ways. To provide his will in his ways. We see the unfolding of God's will and his plan as we walk now through this passage. So God instructs Samuel to go to Bethlehem, to go to Jesse's home. And the next king will be one of his sons. And so Samuel initially expresses a concern here. Well, if I do this, if I fill this horn with oil, if I go and people know I'm going to anoint the king, well, surely Saul will hear this and Saul will kill me. I mean, we see the madness of Saul already springing up here. We see Samuel's concern. And so uh, God here tells him, well, no, you're going to go uh, and you're going to make a sacrifice. And if people ask you, that's why you tell them that you're going. And he was going to do that. God would would use this process to to put him in the home of Jesse, in the presence of Jesse and his sons there. And so he goes there to Bethlehem. Now, you'll notice that as he goes, the elders of the city come out and they're a little concerned. And you might think, well, why are they concerned? Well, just read the last few chapters. Usually when Samuel showed up, it was to give a word of condemnation. (laughs) It was to give a strong rebuke. And so perhaps here they are in Bethlehem thinking, oh no, what have we done? What's going to happen now? But, But Samuel tells him, no, that's not why I'm here. I've come peaceably. And so he goes and he looks at Jesse's sons. You know, notice the very first son he seems, he assumes is going to be the next king of Israel. The assumption here would be that he looks like a king. I mean, remember again how Saul was described. He was tall and he was handsome. He had these kingly features. That The outward appearance was that of a king. And so as Samuel looks on this first son of Jesse, he thinks, well, well surely this is going to be the next king. But you know the story. We just read it as he goes through this process of each of these sons. He he finds out that none of the ones who look on the outside like a king are the ones that God has chosen. And then we have there in verse 7, really I believe the, the key verse in this whole chapter. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. Friend, does that scare you this morning? It should. That there should be a tinge of fear, perhaps just soberness there, when you consider that while every one of us is looking at your outward appearance this morning and what we can see on the outside, that the Lord our God knows your heart and my heart. Friends, we don't even know that. The scripture tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things, that that, that we don't even know our own heart. The scripture tells us, very contrary to what the world tells us, not to follow our heart because our heart will lead us into sin and rebellion. We don't even fully understand or know our own heart, and yet God looks on us and sees. And that should sober us. You may be here this morning just going through one of many religious rituals and experiences. This, this just may be for you something you do during the Christmas season. This might be your annual check-in. And that might be sufficient to the world around you. In fact, that, that might put you above many who don't check in. 
But friend, God knows your heart. And on one hand, that, that should sober us, that there should even be a fear that comes there. And then at the same time, that's an inviting thing. Because the God who knows you for who you are and knows me for who I am put His Son, His only Son on the cross to die for your sins and die for my sins. And I'll tell you right now, friend, I don't know if I were to lay before me all the sins I've committed, all the things that have just crossed through my mind, if I was to lay before myself somehow the, the chronicle of my fallenness, I don't imagine there's a person in the world who would say, well, I'll give my child in your place. And yet God sent His Son, His perfect Son, His only Son, to die for you and I while we were still yet sinners. God knows our heart. That should sober us. And knowing our heart, Jesus died for us. That, that should marvel us. That should astound us. Because friends, that is not expected we live in a world where where people keep tabs where where do unto others as they do unto you we've taken to mean well well if they've done this much for me then i'll do this much for them but i'm not going to do this for them because they haven't done this for me when we keep this this chronicle in our mind of who we're owed and who we owe and yet here we have the unexpected the debt we could never is paid by the one that no one expected to come not in the way that he did and we're reminded of this as we consider what God teaches us through this choosing of David and so as we go through the passage there's a bit of this routine here well with each son the same result no that's not him that's not him that's not him to where Samuel comes to the point where he says well do you have any more sons and and almost as an afterthought, Jess is like, well, we, we've got David. And, and you see in the Scripture, there are many positive things mentioned about David. But I think the indication here is he's kind of the, the run of the litter. And he's kind of the youngest. He's, hey, he's not the one that anyone would consider to be the king. Among his brothers, he's the lowly one. And yet we're reminded here to trust in God to provide his will and his ways. Because it's often from the unexpected and from the lowly, that God chooses the ones he will use. That's what we read earlier, as Pastor David read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To consider our callings, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. We see this in God's economy that he often will raise up servants from lowly places and he delights in using the weak for his good purposes. And that's good news for us. Because we are among the lowly and we are among the weak. I've not done a genealogy on each of you in this room, but I don't think many of you are noble birth. I don't know that we have any kings or queens among us this morning. Any princes or princesses. Sorry kids, even if your parents call you that. <laughs> but what are we reminded of here? That, that God chooses from the least among us those He will use for His glory. 
And that's good news to us who aren't the smartest in the room. That's good news to us who aren't the strongest or the tallest or the prettiest. And it's a reminder to us that God doesn't look through our high school yearbook and just choose those who are most likely to, to use for his good purposes. No, in his economy, he works his will in his ways. You look at David, the run of the litter. You look at Moses who was scared to speak before audiences. You look at the long list of men and women used by God throughout salvation history and you quickly realize that God has a way of raising up His servants from among the weakest and the lowest. He often uses men and women in ways that are the least expected, which brings us to that third and final point. God often works out His will in ways we do not expect and we see that here. I mean, consider what you might expect to happen, what the Israelites might have expected at this point. If news were to have spread that now uh, Saul was rejected by God and Samuel had anointed a new king over Israel and David's going to be that king, what might be expected? I mean, Samuel was scared that if Saul learned that he was going about this work for the Lord, that Saul would kill him. That's an indication there's not going to be a peaceful transition of power here. And so the worldly expectation here might have been for, for David now to gather together an army and for God to use Samuel to call among the people and tell them, David's now the king. You, you fight with David, you fight for David, and let's go and we'll remove Saul because God has rejected Saul and we're going to overthrow Saul's kingdom. That's not... What happens, is it? The expectation may have been for David to overthrow Saul, but David doesn't overthrow Saul. He plays a liar for him. <laughs> and in the providence of God, in this last section of the text, we see how, how God is at work here in, in bringing David, who's now been anointed king, and Saul welcoming him into his home, and giving him this great favor with Saul, and he he does it in a way that no one would expect. Now, just a side note here. You, you may be curious about the, this language we have about the Spirit of the Lord. We saw with Saul when he became king how the Spirit rushed upon him. And now we see as God's rejected him, his he, Spirit's departed from Saul. We see David as he's anointed king, the Spirit rushing on him. We need to understand what's taking place here in this this time in salvation history that, that God through His Holy Spirit, he, he is anointing this office. That these men are called to be kings. And His Spirit is anointing them as king. And when they're not king anymore, then they not only does the Spirit depart from them, but we see with Saul, there's this harmful spirit that torments him. And I'll tell you right now, much has been written about this and few conclusions are agreed to. But I do believe what we see here is an aspect of God's judgment on Saul. That, that Saul has sinned against God. Saul has rebelled against God. Samuel and others were praying, I believe, for the repentance of Saul. Saul does not repent. He will not repent. And so now he is facing the judgment of God in part through this spirit that is tormenting him. Perhaps that tormenting spirit is simply the conviction that God has placed on him over his sinful actions, his lack of repentance. We see the Spirit of God at work that way among us today, don't we? 
that that conviction of sin, God will lay that heavy burden on people and call them to repentance. I remember as if it were yesterday when I was 17 years old and in a a marshy field by the intercoastal waterway in Wilmington, North Carolina. I had wandered out there from a party I was at shortly after I graduated high school. I was about to go to college. And for the first time in my life, the conviction of sin was so heavy on me, it tormented me. And I cried out to God for relief. And God in His grace and mercy towards me in the coming days, brought before me someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that torment was gone. That burden was gone as I put my hope and my trust and my faith in Jesus. Some of you today are tormented about your sin. You've done much to look good on the outside, but something inside you is tearing you apart. And that is the grace and mercy of God calling you to repentance. Because friend, you may be able to fool every other person in this world, but you cannot fool the God who knows your heart. And in His grace towards you, and His grace towards me when I was 17 years old, That torment, that burden is there by the grace of God that you might cry out to God and repent and trust in Him. Sadly, that's not what we see in chapter 16 from Saul. He takes an internal torment. He tries to fix it with external means. Again, God is graciously working His providence through this and in an unexpected way, He's bringing David into his home because God does that. He often works in ways that we do not expect. And so as we consider this text, especially during this Advent season, we consider that David, the least of all his brothers, was the unexpected king. And his reign, his kingdom, will be used by God to prepare the people for a much greater king that would come for our Messiah, Jesus Christ. A Messiah that would come at an unexpected time after centuries of silence from God. The silence is broken through these angelic proclamations about this child that would be born. A Messiah that would come through unexpected means. And not born in a royal castle to a royal family, but born to a common teenage girl, a virgin named Mary. A Messiah that would come to an unexpected city, to Bethlehem, little among the clans of Judah. A Messiah whose birth would come in the lowliest of all places, not wrapped in fine royal linens, but wrapped in swaddling clothes. Not placed in a royal home, but in a feeding trough. The birth of Jesus Christ, our Messiah and Lord, is a reminder to us that God often works out His His will in His ways, in ways that we do not expect. It's a reminder to us, friend, that the gospel is not what we expect. Because if we study God's Word and we're under the conviction of His Word, what we Expect rightfully is judgment. The wages of sin is death. 
but the unexpected happens. God demonstrates His love toward us while we are yet sinners. Christ dies for us. We deserve judgment and we receive mercy. We deserve separation and we receive fellowship. We we deserve eternal death and through Jesus we receive eternal life to all who will believe. And so this morning, this fourth Sunday of Advent, that's really the question for you and I. Do we truly believe? Not are we externally conforming. Not are we playing the part. But have we placed our hope and our trust in the unexpected King, in King Jesus? You may think that you've got your act all together. I guarantee you, you don't think that now at the end of 2020. Nobody does. And you may have great plans for 2021, and those might get as shattered as they were this year. But this morning, there's an invitation to you. Not to put your hope in those plans, not to put your hope in worldly things, but to put your hope in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Because nothing that comes in the coming days, the coming years, the coming decades will be a surprise to Him. And in His providence and in His plan, He has put you in a place this morning where you might hear the gospel, and He's calling you to respond to that gospel and repentance and faith. And for those who have responded, he's calling you this morning to trust in him. And so we invite you to do that now. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father, there is much for us to worry about and much for us to be anxious about in these days. And we have all learned, or perhaps are learning, <laughs> through the events of this year that, that, that while we might think we have plans and we may think that we know what's going to happen tomorrow, we, we don't, and those plans can quickly change. But we're reminded from your word this morning that your plans never change. Your plans are eternal. And, and through your plans, through the ups and downs of salvation history, through all these things that have happened that have been shocking and surprising to others, nothing shocks or surprises you. And that includes our sin. And perhaps there's some, Lord, who think, well, if, if you truly knew how bad I was, and you are the God who knows. And as the God who knows, you're the God who invites. And you call us all to trust in you and put our faith in you. So I pray that's what we do today. Perhaps there are some here this morning who put their hope and their trust in you long ago, but they're struggling to trust you today. Life has not turned out anywhere close to how they thought it would. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to trust in you, that you'd help us to have faith, that we would be reminded this Advent season that we too are a people looking ahead to the coming of a Messiah. And just as the scripture closes with, Lord, I pray that our prayer would be, come, Lord Jesus, come. So help us to trust in you, help us to hope in you this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, we're going to offer now a a time of invitation as we sing hymn 100, Angels We Have Heard on High, and as we sing about this great proclamation of the Messiah's coming, we invite you to respond. A primary response is worship and singing and lifting our voices high. We hope you'll do that. But we also invite you to consider what is God calling you 
to do in response to his word today. And if that response is to come and publicly confess Jesus as Lord, we invite you to do that. That response is to come and follow through in obedience and baptism to start the process of church membership. Perhaps that response is just to come that I and others might pray for you this morning. Perhaps it's to pray there where you are. Whatever it is, we invite you to respond now as we sing and lift our voices together. Thank you.